show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Leary. So what are we serving today? Ahoy there, Tim. Ahoy, shipmates. Ahoy. I'm not drinking rum. No. <laughs> uh, no, I've got a seaweed gin and tonic. <gasps> yum, yum. Delightful. I also have mm. a seaweed gin or, you know, a coastal gin uh, containing oh. seaweed. Uh, and uh, not tonic actually soda because i love the taste so much it's just soda mm. care to share which one you have uh do you know what i'll tell you later oh, okay. i'll keep i'll keep you in suspense Mysterious. i've got i've got some Mysterious. notes on it somewhere somewhere among here this is going to be a bit of a freeform <laughs> episode by the way because um our research kind of went uh across each other's research as we realized when we were discussing it just before hitting record we, so um, I'll, I'll tell you at some point, other. probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today is about seaweed and algae. Yeah. Yes, and algae, seaweed, sea. <laughs> stuff that grows in the sea. Exactly. Shall I? Shall I begin by defining, laying down a few laws of what algae and seaweed are? Straight in with the rules. All right. <laughs> Just to get us in the mood. <laughs> right. <laughs> What is algae? The ancestors to the green algae became photosynthetic by endosymbiosing a green photosynthetic bacterium about 1.65 billion years ago. That is as much to say it's kind of the ancestor of all modern plant life and they did it by finding a bacteria that could photosynthesize and taking it upon itself and becoming this new life form. So that was about, that was over one and a half billion years ago. Evidence suggests that land plants evolved from a line of filamentous green algae, so that means they kind of start to have things that look like leaves, I suppose, uh, that invaded land about 410 million years ago during the Silurian period of the Paleozoic era. Um, if you'd rather see that in action than hear me talk about it, I highly recommend watching um, Earth the documentary series that Chris Packham did recently because there's a whole episode Ooh. on that and it's really cool. Um, That's handy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Algae are basic, just to throw some shade. Uh, algae are basic, non-flowering <laughs> plants that belong to a vast category that includes seaweed and many single-celled organisms. So they are different, but they're all family. Uh, these plants have chlorophyll and other pigments for photosynthesis, but they do not have roots, they don't have stems or leaves or vascular tissue. Algae are found in or near both salt water and fresh water in nature and can range in size from the microscopic, called microalgae, to gigantic seaweeds like the giant kelp that can be up to 100 feet long. Algae are very diverse, they can be found practically anywhere on Earth. And also we've got cyanobacteria, which are similar to bacteria. They were once known as blue-green algae. And we've also got green, brown and red algae. that are all examples of microalgae. Certain algae have traditionally been consumed as whole foods. 
primarily uh, historically or they're increasing everywhere else in Asian countries such as Japan that transform various seaweeds including nori, wakame, hijiki and kombu into snacks and side dishes or garnishes. They are a superfood, I say in inverted commas, because, you know, it's not a real term, but it's one that we use to say that they are very dense in nutrients. They are one of the most dense in nutrients foods in the world. Uh, they've got lots of vitamins, including A, B1, B2, B6, niacin and C. They're rich in iodine, potassium, iron, magnesium and calcium. Um, and for all those reasons and more, they're very popular with people who don't eat meat because they contain long chain essential omega-3 fatty acids, DHA, EPA, lots of acronyms. They're, they're the things that you're told, oh, this is the reason you must have oily fish because it contains omega-3 fatty acids and all that. But the fish actually just get them by eating algae. That's where mm -hmm. it comes from. The fish don't produce it, they get it from eating algae. So you can just go straight to the source and eat mm -hmm. you know, algae and algae-based <laughs> things yourself to uh, get that that good stuff eat like a fish eat, eat like a fish exactly <laughs> not only drink like a fish but eat like a fish too <laughs> <laughs> and some of us have a memory of a fish mm, uh the what's that? Help me. <laughs> <Girl>. <laughs> <She> forgot. <laughs> the the food and agriculture organization reports that the world production in 2019 that's the latest figures i have was over 35 million tons uh, North America produced some 23,000 tonnes of wet seaweed. Alaska, Maine, France and Norway um, each more than doubled their seaweed production since 2018. And it represents 30% of marine aquaculture. Seaweed farming is carbon negative with a high potential for climate change mitigation. It's super, super good. Got a couple more seaweed facts, I think. And then obviously I've got to do some etymology. Uh, most of the world's oxygen comes from seaweed. Researchers say that roughly 70% of the world's oxygen is produced by sea species, including phytoplankton, kelp and algal plankton. In comparison, rainforests that get all the headlines make up 28% of oxygen production, while 2% comes from other sources. Hmm. There are nine times more seaweeds in the oceans than there are plants on the land. There are over 12,000 species of seaweed, all with different sizes and colours. Green, red and brown seaweed leave, live only in salt water. Green seaweeds can be found in shallow waters in warm tropical climates. Brown seaweeds are much bigger than the green seaweeds and live at greater depths. And red seaweed can grow in cold water that is either shallow or deep. You ready for a bit of etymology? You're suitably, suitably warmed up by how important and impressive seaweed is, right? I am. And it's it's nice that although we acknowledge that we had kind of crossed each other's paths with the research, you just knew probably instinctively that I would have seen a lot of these like long words and gone, nah, I'm, I'm not covering that. Just let Tim do it. So you covered all the stuff that I looked at and thought, that's all very interesting, but there are lots of long words that I can't pronounce, whether they're like Latin names for seaweed or whatever. I'm just not touching it. <laughs> Speaking of Latin names, let me do a bit of etymology and then I'll throw back to see if there's anything else you wanted to add about why uh, algae and seaweed is important. So here we go. The, the singular alga is the Latin word for seaweed and retains that meaning in English. So confusingly, even though they're sort of the same but different, that goes right through their etymology. Um, that etymology itself is a bit obscure. Some people think it's from the Latin uh, algere, which means be cold. 
no reasons particularly known uh, why seaweed would be associated with temperature other than I guess it could come from the cold sea. A more likely source is aliga, uh, which means binding or entwining. I think that's a better version. The ancient Greek word for seaweed uh, was phycos, which could mean um, either the seaweed, probably red algae, or a red dye that was derived from it. The Latinization, fucus, means primarily the cosmetic rouge. Um, the etymology is a bit uncertain, but a strong candidate is that uh, some word related to um, puk or paint uh, from, from uh, biblical words, actually, which meant a cosmetic eyeshadow that was used by the ancient Egyptians uh, and other inhabitants of Eastern Mediterranean. And that could be any colour, actually, black, red, green or blue. Um, and the modern study of marine and freshwater algae is called either phycology or algology, depending on whether they're using the Greek or Latin roots. Mm-hmm. Interesting side note to this, right, is that as I explained in Words for Drunk, uh, the etymology of alcohol goes back to alcohol, coal being the crushed dark mineral that was used as eyeliner. Um, around uh, Ah. those areas in the eastern Mediterranean. So there's actually a direct link between uh, the etymologies of seaweed and the etymology of alcohol. There's a direct uh, relationship between them already, although not as you might think, but um, in the way that they both have their roots in eye makeup. (laughs) Mm, Very interesting. That's that's pretty cool, right? Um, Mm. And paint as well, meaning uh, pint. Uh, one more thing in classical Chinese, the word uh, or you know the the symbol that is used for algae um, also means literary talent. It means okay. both of those things. So there's there's an island actually. Um, uh, oh, I forget where, but there is there is an island, and it it either means the island um, where you view the algae or the island of literary talent. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I guess try and combine them both together. I don't know why. I don't know why they mean the same thing, but it was just a, a different route. Mm. Anything else you want to uh, throw in generally about algae, seaweed? Uh, there was one fact that I think you missed that I thought was quite interesting. Do you know the average mm. lifespan of a seaweed plant? No, I do not. Mm. Has it a guess? It feels like it could be one of those things that could sort of grow indefinitely um, if it's not actively killed off. So I'm going to say something ridiculous like 50 years. I thought that, but no, quite the opposite. The average lifespan is just one to two years. Oh, okay. Yeah, who would have thunk it? But despite that, they are extremely resilient. Um, I mean, they're quite resistant to lots of environmental stress. They can withstand like crashing waves, uh, intense sun, exposure to air during low tides for prolonged times. They're really adaptable and hardy. Um, they are, as you said, the most abundant plants in existence. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, they, they can just kind of adapt to unstable habitats, including like rocky beaches. They can grow on rocky cliffs. Um, but obviously they do need salt water. Just a bit of salt water and sun is all they need to survive. Um, but interestingly, despite them being super hardy and resilient, uh, according to medieval literature, the first ever environmental laws were once written to limit the harvesting of certain seaweeds, such as dulse. Oh, wow. Mm. Do so we that know... was another fun fact. 
I did not. Why that I, is. I tried very hard to find out what literature it was in and why, but I failed. Um, I mean, presumably, <clears throat> people were doing a lot. I wonder if it was because it had like emerged as a sort of cottage industry well, or I did, something, and people were getting protective over their land. I did have to get a bit kind of. I did have to assume a few things because I was trying really hard to find like what literature said this, why, couldn't find reasonings why, but I was finding about how seaweed, dulcin in particular, was just used in abundance for so many things. They were using it as like fertilizers for the land, they were feeding it to livestock and commercialized like commercial animals. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it was just massively used. So I guess it was just because people were just harvesting it like crazy because it had so yeah. many uses. We are going to talk about it in drinks <laughs> at mm. some point. I know we've just spoken about what <laughs> algae and seaweed is at the moment. Like It is going to get onto drinks at some point, I promise. Mm. Do, do you know, the reason why I wanted to do this as a subject, though, is um, because the, the first kind of instance I saw of it um, being used is in some craft breweries as a biofilter. Because there's a couple near me where I walked in and I was like, ooh, what's this pretty luminous green thing that's bubbling next to, um, <laughs> you know, ne next to where they're making the beer and I'm drinking it. And um, it's biofilters. So, you know, in the brewing process, it, it produces a lot of carbon dioxide uh, because they're, you know, the, the yeast are turning sugar into alcohol and carbon dioxide and that's not something we want to be putting out into the atmosphere but what you can do is set up a tank with algae in it and you bubble that waste carbon dioxide through it and the algae absorbs it and what comes out the other side is more algae and oxygen is their waste product so a small brewer can actually produce the same amount of oxygen as two hectares of forest um, in, I think it's like a week of production or something. Mm -hmm. So it's it's quite significant, you know, take not only taking the carbon dioxide out, but um, putting the oxygen uh, back in as well. And it's something that's very simple. You, you pretty much just set up a tank and run your gas through it. The main thing you then have to figure out is what you're doing with the extra algae <laughs> that it's producing because <laughs> it's producing more algae as a result of it. But fortunately, there's like a million uses for algae. Um, obviously, there's examples uh, of it being turned into food, but you can also create bioplastics out of it. There's some amazing things being done uh, creating bioplastics, uh, biofuel, wastewater treatment. Uh, there's all sorts of things that you can do with the, the excess algae. So that was the first reason why I wanted to talk about it, because I thought, <laughs> oh, that's impressive. And I'm seeing more craft brewers take that on as a, as a method mm. of keeping their um, emissions low. But I think we all want to know, can we drink it? Okay, we're all getting pretty thirsty by now <laughs> for a drink. So I'm, I'm just going to throw an algae beer in there to kick things off. Okay. Um, this is a beer brand uh, called Line. Um, which was a type between uh, Atika spirulina, who were aiming to kind of popularise the spirulina algae as a dietary supplement, and Hoppy Urban Brew, who are based in the city of Roubaix in France. Mm -hmm. um, so it's marketed as this session IPA. Um, it, is, it is a low ABV. Um, they described it as a very light beer. Um, the hop flavours coming through, subtle citrus undertones. It has this low alcohol concentration, 3%. ABV. 
Uh, they say there's a hint of lychee in the back of the mouth. Um, while the only evidence of the added algae is its colour. So they've they've added it. They say you can't really taste the algae, but it is a very pleasant, uh, if somewhat trippy, blue colour. <laughs> so it tricks your mind. You pick, it, you pick it up and you're expecting certain flavours from a blue uh, beer, but it just tastes like a low ABV uh, session IPA, apparently. Mm. Um, but yeah, spirulina is pretty great. It is a form of cyanobacteria, uh, that blue-green algae, hence it's the blue. Um, the ancient Aztecs used to consume it, um, so it was, it's, a, it's a very old ingredient, but it got a lot of attention again in more recent times when NASA sort of said this is something that we could easily cultivate in space for astronauts to use because it's the most nutrient-dense food on the planet. It's very high in antioxidants um, and all sorts of good things. I don't need to go over all the um, things that are good about it again because we've, we've already said it, but it's great. Um, and of course with spirulina you don't have to consume it in alcohol, although obviously we recommend it. <laughs> um, you can get uh, soft drinks like, now I don't know how to pronounce it, whether it's full or fuel, it's F-U-L. Um, mm. But they have like a carbonated blue drink that's a, a little bit sweet and has sort of lemon and ginger or lime and meat, mint or white peach flavours so it's basically like a low sugar but very highly nutritious um, mm -hmm. soda that you can have and you know they market it as well by saying look, it doesn't require any arable land um, it's it doesn't require any fertilizers or pesticides or really fresh water um, you know or at least little of it um, and so it's really good you know in terms of deforestation biodiversity lot loss, desertification, freshwater usage and pollution that you get from almost any other crop to some extent really. That's mm -hmm. the beauty I think of harvesting things from the seas. Or you can just get spirulina supplements and throw it into, you know, whatever you're making, any old smoothie. Mm -hmm. um, I get most excited about seaweed gins. Before we get on seaweed gins, did you want to say anything about beer? Yeah, I actually wanted to say something about spirulina. No, oh, go on then. Um, you were saying about how it's so kind of dense with goodness. And I did actually find a list of what one tablespoon of spirulina, um, like the powdered stuff that you said about the supplements, like what mm -hmm. one tablespoon of that would provide you with. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, so one tablespoon would give you two grams of protein, 67 grams of carbohydrate, 54 grams of fat, eight milligrams of calcium, two milligrams of iron, 14 milligrams of magnesium, 8 milligrams of phosphorus, 95 milligrams of potassium, 73 milligrams of sodium, 7 milligrams of vitamin C, and it also contains theamine, riboflavin, niacin, folate, and vitamins B6, A, and K. It's amazing, isn't it? Packs a punch, yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. We um, should all be consuming it constantly <laughs> and turn into like avatar people. <laughs> So then I delved into the world of proper seaweed drinks. So I think this is where we can get excited about seaweed gin and whatnot. Should we talk about oh, yeah. seaweed gins? Do you know what? I've remembered I have got one more beer Ooh. to talk about before we go on to gin, just while we're here. I've got some beers, uh, but they're in I've America, got... so I'll come to them later. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a challenge for you as well as part of this one, uh, which I know you always enjoy. Mm -hmm. Um... So it's, uh, this is Kelpie Ale, yes. which is from Williams Brothers in Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the notes they've got on this one are that at least 400 years ago, the coastal and island farmers of Scotland used seaweed beds to grow their cereal crops. This barley produced very interesting flavours in the ale and whiskey they produced, including bladderack seaweed in the mash tun, along with organic barley, giving the wholesome dark ale a distinctive flavour. All the reviews have basically said it's very close to porter, um, mm. the, the flavour that comes through. Um, but I thought while we were on that, because we've spoken about kelp, because they called it kelpie and it's in Scotland, um, mm-hmm. for you to know what, what a kelpie is. Do you know what kelpie is? Have you heard otherwise? I thought a kelpie was a dog. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> not in this context. So a kelpie or a water kelpie is a shape-shifting spirit that inhabits lochs in um, Irish and Scottish folklore. And it's usually described as a black horse-like creature who's able to uh, adopt human form. So some accounts say that the Kelpie retains its hooves when it's appearing as human, which leads to it being associated with Christian ideas of Satan, um, as alluded to by Robert Burns in his 1786 poem, Address to the Devil. Do you know where this is going? Yes. I've sent you the poem in the chat for you to read in your fantastic um, Scottish accent, please. Do you ever listen to the off-menu podcast when they keep making James Acaster impersonate Shrek? No. This is starting to feel like that. I think you've mentioned that before, but I I still don't listen to it. (laughs) Ah, okay, here we are. Oh, it's only a little one. Okay. When thaws dissolve the snowy horde. That's not. Scottish, <laughs> and float the jingling icy board. Then water kelpies. I'm not. I can't do Scottish. Hang on. I've forgotten what Scottish people sound like. I mean, I've the idea doing... wasn't that you were meant to be good. It wasn't that you were meant to be bad. <laughs> I've, been doing, I've been doing Liverpool for too long. Can I do it in a Scouse accent? <laughs> no. <laughs> when thaws dissolve the snowy horde and float the jingling icy board. Then water kelpies haunt the ford by your direction, and nighted travellers are allured to their destruction. Mm. Sorry, Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Love torturing you with Scottish poetry. Oh, I hate it so much. I'm sorry. Oh, so, to summarise, uh, the kelpie is usually described as this powerful, beautiful black horse that inhabits the deep pools of, um, and rivers of uh, Scotland preying on any humans it encounters. One of the water kelpie's common identifying characteristics is that its hooves are reversed as compared to those of a normal horse, a trait that's also shared by the Nikur of Iceland. There's an Aberdeenshire variation portraying the kelpie as a horse with a mane of serpents, uh, whereas the resident equine spirit of the river Spey was white and would entice victims onto its back by singing. Um, in its equine form, the Kelpie is able to extend the length of its back to carry many riders together into the depths. There's a common theme in the tale that there several children will clamber onto the creature's back while one remains on the shore. Usually a little boy, he pets the horse, but his hand sticks to the neck. And in some variations, the lad has to cut off his fingers or his hands to free himself. And then he survives, but the other children are carried off and drowned, uh, with only some of their entrails being found later. Nice. Del- delightful stories from Scottish <laughs> history. 
Uh, almost every sizeable body of water in Scotland has an associated Kelpie story, uh, the most extensively reported being Loch Ness. Uh, the Kelpie's counterparts across the world, such as the Germanic Nixie, the uh, Weewin of South America, and the Australian Bunyip. Um, the origins of narratives about creatures of this kind are not necessarily clear, but it obviously has a practical purpose of keeping children away from dangerous stretches of water. And with the whole disguise uh, aspect of the stories as well, it's warning young women to be wary of handsome strangers, um, as is noted in often literary sources. There you go. I thought you'd uh, enjoy uh, learning a little bit about the Kelpie while we're on kelp and well, uh, enough, Kelpie beers. I, uh, have you heard of the Kelp Man? <laughs> What's the Kelp Man? <laughs> the Kelp Man. Uh, he is the... Um, the man that gets the kelp for a distillery. <laughs> ah, well, I, I, in that case, yes, I do know about that. Um, we, I, which I one think, have you got? I think we might be drinking the same gin if you know of the kelp man. Okay, go on, you do it. Uh, so my gin is from the Isle of Harris distillery. Yes. Yes. Same I've, one. I've, I've got the full. I've got the full website content for this written down because <laughs> <Me too. laughs> other webs. I'll let I'll let you do it, but I just the reason I kind of put it all down is because uh, you know in a, on a lot of websites you look at, they're like we use this ingredient because it's good, but Scottish websites, man, they tell a story. <laughs> yeah. Like we're not going to say that when we could say this. Go on, you take it. They they talk about him like he is a superhero. Mm -hmm. Um. It was amazing when I read this. And I, I found myself reading it and I was just like, mm, do I like this story or not? Or is this marketing bullshit? But I thought, no, actually, they've done this very well. <laughs> uh, so I will read you. Meet the kelp man. In spring each year, the golden green sugar kelp fronds become ready for harvesting by hand, carefully picked from our outer Hebridean sea lochs, blemish free and at their best for making our Isle of Harris gin. We entrust this task to one man, our friend and distillery diver, Lewis Mackenzie, who selects every piece of this special seaweed from his secret underwater forests. In his black and red dry suit, he cuts a superheroic figure in the shores of Loch Erisort. I said that wrong. Erisort. Loch Erisort. So much so that we nicknamed him the Kelp Man. With only seven millimetres of neoprene to keep the cold waters at bay, Lewis collects the kelp by himself, free diving during a two-hour window on either side of the fortnightly low spring tides. He says, My boat is anchored over the harvest site and I roll into the sea with mesh bags into which the fronds of kelp are placed. After a couple of hours in the water, I'm ready to get back into the boat, where after a coffee, the bags are emptied and the seaweed carefully cleaned. After 30 years of diving, he remains impressively enthusiastic about taking the cold plunge in pursuit of these wonderful, savoury, sweet plants. Every day is still an adventure. Yes, it's cold, wet and comfortable, but you learn to blank these out. And the sights to be seen underwater around the Outer Hebrides more than compensates for a drop or two of cold water down my neck. Ah, yeah, it's great, guy. isn't it? The, the whole website is very evocative. <laughs> <laughs> He does and half they... tours. Could whack that on our uh, on the spreadsheet as well. Yes. We'll hang out with the kelp man. Absolutely. And they use um, sugar kelp mm -hmm. in theirs. I've got some things about sugar kelp. Um, it's also known by Seabelt or the Devil's Apron, um, and is one of the species in uh, Japanese cuisine where it's there known as kombu. 
So you can have it as vegetable, in salads, um, etc, etc. And it's where um, monosodium glutamate was first isolated, or MSG, uh, as it's known, which still, for some reason, has this reputation of being like a weird additive, but it isn't. It's just a tasty, natural, umami thing that you can you can consume. So that was where it was uh, it was first found. And sugar kelp gets its name because um, it contains the sugar alcohol mannitol which is extracted and used as a sugar substitute, or f um, especially for chewing gum. Mm -hmm. So sugar kelp is pretty cool. I've got a couple of other places that use sugar kelp. Elevenses mm -hmm. um, Distillery. Okay. Have you seen that one? No. Uh, it's North Wales. No. North Wales on the banks of the Menai Straits. Um, so it's, um, it's a small, it's still um, kind of a small still um mm -hmm. but uh yeah they they uh harvest it it's it's a welsh company called now let's see Calimore. <laughs> heard of them okay sure <laughs> <laughs> well anyway that's one in north wales there's a lot of um as you would guess um welsh gins that are employing uh seaweed aren't they yes i think i've spoken about the darmio one before the one in um west wales Yes. Um, I did find yeah. another beer actually in Pembroke, Trawler's mm -hmm. Trawler's Dread, a black IPA. Um, so they use dulse and surprise, surprise, kelp, <laughs> uh, plucked straight from the Pembrokeshire coastline. Um, gives, as they say, gives Trawler's Dread the aroma of a fresh Pembrokeshire sea breeze. Um, but much like the one that you mentioned earlier, a lot of the reviews kind of people can't really taste it. A lot of people say it's just like a coffee porter. They can't really mm -hmm. taste the seaweed, which is a shame. Um, uh, while we're on kelp, um, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole and I kept finding lots of different seaweed beers from craft breweries, but I did notice that they all had one thing in common and it's that they're from the same area. Uh, so I was doing a bit of digging into this and I realised that in America... Um, did you know that every April there's a seaweed week in Maine <laughs> uh, to celebrate Maine's kelp farming ha harvest? <laughs> yeah, I've Maine's actually, kelp harvest. I find a few from Maine, so yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I don't know if you found some of the same ones as me. Fogtown Brewing Company. Um, so they've got one called Scupper, which is a seaweed saison brewed with. Um, Dulce kelp and Irish moss. Mm. Um, but I found a really funny named one from um, a brewing company called Oxbow Brewing. They had my favourite name. Um, their beer is called Kelp I Need Some Honey because they make <laughs> a beer. It's a mixed fermentation farmer's ale. Braid, braid, I've lost the ability to speak today. <laughs> A mixed <laughs> fermentation farmer's ale brewed with main grains, Icelandic kelp, Delaware wildflower honey, and it's also conditioned with their own estate honey. And that's 8% kelp I need some body. That, that's the one I like the most. <laughs> nice. I have got, yeah, I've got a few, um, I think, to go back over <laughs> of, of uh, mm -hmm. various locations and, uh, and mm -hmm. uses. Um so yeah, the uh, I think the one of the ones for sugar kelp, um, going mm -hmm. back to that one that we ever mentioned is Marshall Wharf Brewing Company, which I think mm -hmm. is a 
is a main one. Yeah, I've got a couple of that are in main. And this is a Scotch Ale uh, called Sea Belt uh, that they use sugar cup in. It says it pours an opaque dark reddish brown with a third inch head. It's taste, its taste is peaty, malty, seaweed and smoke. It's very mm -hmm. sweet. Uh, so it tastes like a mix of Scottish Ale and seawater. Um, some of the reviews go from um, candied smoky seaweed, couldn't finish it, <laughs> to 4.25 out of 5, this shit is the shit. <laughs> Those are the two reviews I picked out of that one. Um, also, a main grain seaweed saison. Um, so that's quite tart up front with a fruity funk and then that briny kick. Uh, they share their recipe online for that one, actually. In addition to all the things you'd expect, like grains and hops, they use Maine uh, kelp seaweed, Maine dulse seaweed, and Maine Irish moss. Mm. Mm. Um, Newfoundland as well. While we're over mm -hmm. water, but not in Maine, uh, we go to Canada. There's a seaweed gin there mm -hmm. um, that uses dulse from the Grand Banks, but also juniper um, as well. So it's... Uh, it's still ginny but also oceanic um, mm. and they use their local botanicals uh, it's won a double gold medal at the san francisco world spirit competitions so that's a very famous one uh, i got a few more things about dulse actually got on dulse so it's a popular snack food in iceland where it's known as uh, sol and it's uh, been a very important source of dietary fiber for them throughout the centuries what lovely images you can uh, conjure up there. <laughs> the earliest record of it as a species is actually on the uh, Scottish island of Iona, where the Christian monks used to harvest it over 1400 years ago. And um, they would make it as well to um, put it in their white soda bread, so very similar to the lava bread that you have in, in Wales. No. Do you want to know which one I'm actually drinking? We haven't mentioned it yet. It hasn't come up. I am actually drinking the Kelpman one myself. <clears throat> oh, yeah. The Isle of Harris one, yeah. What are you oh, drinking? nice. Oh, I'm, I'm quite mm. envious. Well, I mean, mine's really nice as well, but also the Isle of Harris one's nice. So the one I'm drinking, hasn't come up yet, is I'm drinking Gaia and Gimbal Coastal Gin, uh, mm. which hails from Norwich. So uh, this is, you know, flavours that you would find on the Norfolk coast. Um, it's the same recipe that um, won the Best English Contemporary Gin at the World Gin Awards in 2021. Uh, they use rock samphire. I love that we haven't mentioned samphire. Mm, love yes. samphire. Uh, rock samphire, dulse seaweed, um, which is, as we said, slightly smoky. And then they use lavender, bay leaf, lots of citrus and grapefruit, um, dried lemon, which makes it a little bit jammy, some pepper and a bit of spice as well. So it's got a lot, of, you know, lots of different things going on. Also, what's notable about this one is they sell it in a paper bottle. Ooh. Yeah, uh, so it's ninety four percent recycled paper, and then it has like a in a recyclable plastic pouch. Um, so say the carbon footprint's about six times smaller than a glass bottle, but it's still recyclable. Um, I guess you know largely because of the weight, it's um, it's lower carbon as opposed to the material as much. I suppose. Mm -hmm. Do you know where Gaia and Gimbal comes from? No, I have no idea. Alice in Wonderland. It's from the Jabberwocky oh, no. poem. I won't make you read out another poem, but it's from the <laughs> it's from the line "Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave." Of uh, course, yeah. Which is you know mostly nonsense, but 
those two words in particular, Humpty Dumpty does explain uh, in, in the novel. So it says that gimbal is to make holes like a gimlet. And what is a gimlet? A, a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, yes. So in addition to being a hand tool for drilling small holes, it's also a drink consisting of sweetened lime juice and gin or vodka, uh, and sometimes mm. carbonated or plain water as well. So drinks connection there. And Gaia? Can you guess what Gaia is? Japes. <laughs> it's, not, it's not Japes. Um, I mean, we should probably pronounce it Gaia, except that clearly it was meant to be pronounced as Gaia and Gimbal in the poem. Uh, but yeah, it's um, to, to Gaia or Gyre is to go round and round like a gyroscope. And on, on that uh, bottle is a picture of half of a walrus and half of a carpentry tool. Nice. and the carpenter um mm -hmm. this place actually has an amazing bar in norwich uh, in addition to this tasty coastal gin they have lots of zero waste drinks um so they do lots of kind of you know local foraging and stuff but also um the uh, the garnishes they put on the drinks are dried pineapple and then with the leftover rinds they make tapache which i think we've mentioned at some point before which is like fermented pineapple leftovers and is really nice they're used coffee grounds from that from their coffees they're used to infuse in their vermouth they make uh shrubs um and they make trash cordials so basically any kind of leftover waste fruit or whatever they just throw in and then leave it to ferment to make tasty things out of it it's a very cool bar so if you're around norwich i recommend going there were there any more that you wanted to throw in while i paused um i've got an alcohol free option yeah Yes, I found a lovely company in Portland called Cup of Sea. Uh, they make seaweed-infused teas that they wild harvest from uh, seaweed in the Gulf of Maine. Um, so they dry them out and blend them in small batches. And some of the options, I think as well, I'm pretty sure I double-checked that they do ship internationally, so we could get some. Uh, some of the options they have are honeybush and sea lettuce, ginger turmeric and bladder rack, lapsan souchon black tea and dulse, sencha green tea and kelp, or they do a breakfast black tea and kelp. Lots of seaweedy teas there. Nice. Tasty. Did you mention, mm -hmm. um, did you mention still wild drinks on the Pembrokeshire no. coast? No. So, um, yeah, one. this is this you did. I, I just thought, oh, goodness, I've got a note about a, a Welsh one that you haven't mentioned. So, still <laughs> wild drinks have a coastal gin. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, they, they've got so they fill it with uh, things they find on the coast and the cliffside. So, seaweed, rock samphire, gorse flower, sea buckthorn, and mm -hmm. thyme. Um, they say that their, their distillery is situated in the Pembrokeshire National Park, which is the UK's only coastal national park. Fact. Um, <laughs> they say the, the landscape gives a broad range of habitats, large variety of plants, seaweed from the coastal waters, sea wormwood from the um, inland estuary, bright heather from the Priscelli Mountains, uh, woods, gnarled old hedgerows, so uh, they say that it kind of it's a forager's dream uh, to be around uh, Pembrokeshire. They also mm -hmm. cold distill their drinks. 
so uh, they don't kind of lose any of those fragile aromas from from boiling or going over 80 degrees everything's uh, cold distilled there they've got some other ingredients i found on their website which sounded uh, super interesting so i'll just have a little look we've got hogweed which you see everywhere mm -hmm. i think and um they say the overlooked native botanical is highly aromatic with a warm spicy taste think cardamom crossed with orange zest toasting the seeds really brings out the flavor it's a common sight among hedgerows of britain and most people don't look at hogweed twice but it does play an important part in persian cuisine throwback to our um shiraz episode i didn't know that see hogweed everywhere, no. anywhere i've never thought to toast the seeds i'm gonna now <laughs> Um, Rock Samphire I've mentioned, um, but did you know Shakespeare writes about the dangers of picking it um, when in the scene in King Lear where, um, you know, Mad Tom is on the cliffside, talks about the dangers of picking it there. Uh, we've got Sweet Woodruff, which is a plant that loves the shade, can be found covering woodland floors. Uh, it's been used as a herb for centuries, but we've generally forgotten about it today. Um, it smells like a mixture of honey, vanilla and hay once it's dried, but when it before it's dried it doesn't really smell too much. That sounds lovely. Mm. Bog myrtle, um, which has a heavy fragrance somewhere between lavender and rosemary. Uh, mm -hmm. And it has an interesting bitterness, um, which you don't necessarily want in some drinks, but would be great in something like vermouth, or I would, I would imagine could be used in place of hops maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, elderberries as well. They use in their sweet vermouth. Love elderberries. Uh, and sea wormwood, um, which has only been recently discovered by their distillers. They say Artemisia maritima, mm -hmm. uh, which grows on the estuary, estuary between Lorraine and Crosswell, uh, Cresswell Quay. Um, so it's one of three wild wormwoods that they use. Highly fragrant, dry, and bitter kind of thing you would find in absinthe hmm. yeah and meadow sweet i think is the last one i've got here meadow sweet uh, which loves ancient hedgerows and damp soil and it has an overpowering smell apparently as you approach it of marzipan and vanilla hmm. aren't they all delightful they are it's funny you mentioned gorse my, a friend of mine makes a liqueur from the gorse flowers because they are everywhere around here. Mm -hmm. um, and I did find a recipe online as well for a, a gorse flower rum, which sounded very, very um, easy. You just take a bottle of white rum, two cups of gorse flowers, the zest of an orange and some sugar. Put all of those ingredients into a clean jar, upend it gently to dissolve the sugar, store it overnight in a cool, dark place. The next day, Strain it through some muslin, gently pressing down to get all the flavours out, and mm -hmm. you've got a nice gorse flower infused um, rum. So the the gorse flowers have got like a really nice coconutty, almondy taste, so it just goes really nice with the rum. So I might give that a bash as well. Marvellous. We really need mm -hmm. to do some foraging in Wales, I think. I wonder. And a little bit told me you're coming to Wales soon. I wonder if we can go foraging. That would be great. Out. I think we mm. should try and stay alive after a day of foraging let's try i'll, yeah. I'll look into it good <laughs> uh so i had to include a whiskey obviously um which is unsurprising because as we found like seaweed is mostly used around scotland and ireland and wales and obviously they love producing whiskey as well uh curragh whiskey 
I found. Um, they do seaweed harvesting uh, that employs about 400 people in Ireland uh, on a part-time basis because it's weather and tide dependent. But they use fourth generation seaweed harvesters, the Tulti family, uh, that ensure only the finest seaweeds are selected for Korak's single malt whiskey. Uh, all their seaweeds grow naturally off the wild Atlantic Way in County Clare. I found this is a common thing as well. Like the, the seaweed harvester stories are as epic as the sort of <laughs> distiller origin stories. Um, they So they harvest kombu, the brown seaweed. Uh, in the extreme lower part of the shore, which um, is harvested during the low spring tides throughout the year. And mm -hmm. they finish their whiskey in these kombu charred casks um, to give them that kind of multi-layered whiskey with the imami character. And then the wakami, the green seaweed, um, is uh, harvested from extreme lower shores um, on the wave battered rocks and in rock pools in the winter months. So they've got kind of the two different seasons that they can harvest it. Um, and that gives a briny, salty, umami flavour with a degree of sweetness. And to extend the whiskey uh, association, uh, I, this was one I had to pick up on, which is the Scottish distillery Glenlivet unveiled a series of glassless cocktails for London Cocktail Week. Um, a couple of years back it was, which consist of liquor and some other stuff <laughs> to make up a cocktail in a seaweed extract casing. So yeah. it instantly drew comparison to Tide Pods. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, that, that's exactly where my mind went. Yeah, they, they look like Tide Pods and obviously we went through that spate of young people putting laundry detergent in those dissolvable transparent casings into their mouth to taste what it would be like. Um, so yeah, they, they're basically bringing that trend back. <laughs> cool, thanks. <laughs> um, it's only 20, they're only 23 millilitres in each pod. Um, so it's less than a shot's worth of fluid and it wasn't even um, straight whiskey, it was a cocktail. Um, so, you know, they came in three flavours, citrus, wood and spice. It was a very limited thing. They weren't kind of <laughs> intending to put it out as a product, but it was, it was I think kind of driven by the startup um, Notpla. Notpla, which is a terrible name. I think it's supposed to be not plastic. And they were like, let's just call it Notpla. Sure, that's fun to say. Um, and they called the packaging, and again, it's pronounced Oho, but it's spelled O-O-H-O, -O, mm -hmm. which is Uho. Yeah, I think I've had one. Um... At a running event. I think Lucas yes. Aid brief briefly teamed up with them and I've had a so, little pouch of Lucas Aid in one of these things. The London Marathon uh, this spring, runners were handed Oho Seal blobs of sports drink. Uh, so they probably had some leftovers and went around the various marathons. Yeah. Um, they also teamed up with Just Eat to put ketchup and garlic and herb sauce in them as well as a trial run of using them that not to like pop in your mouth whole but as an alternative oh. to putting it in little uh, plastic containers now i feel like their kind of marketing efforts have not gone well like they've not attracted mm -hmm. people going oh that's great but i looked on their website and actually they do some really brilliant stuff like they have normal packaging on it like food carton packaging they make paper they make bioplastics they do loads of really good um you know sustainable kind of stuff 
with their bioplastics. It's just that the ones that seem to hit the headlines are not very appetising. So they really no. need to rethink how they're putting that out, I think. I couldn't think of anything less appetising than one of those little pods filled with garlic and herb sauce. <laughs> it's not a pleasant God. image, is it? It's just not. Um, and finally, I suppose, while we're, while we're just coming back to that alternative use um, of mm. algae and seaweed... Um, it, it, it's in the um, uh, the biofuel thing. I thought I'd just kind of pick up on that because I mentioned it in mm-hmm. passing. You know, the very first Henry Ford Model T was designed to run on either ethanol or gasoline. So at the time, gasoline wasn't widely available, um, but any farmers could make their own ethanol by fermenting corn or any other biomass. So the idea, I think, behind kind of creating it that way was, look, you've got the option um, and it makes it more accessible to everyone that they can create their own fuel. But gasoline did win the day because it is more energy dense than ethanol. It has about 33% more energy, meaning you get more miles per gallon from gasoline than from ethanol. So as it became kind of more popular, you know, throughout cities and stuff, it made more sense for them to invest in gasoline than, than ethanol, which would have been better in rural locations. There was also a lot of lobbying and campaign contributions from the petroleum industry, shock horror, uh, that meant that gasoline became dominant as the uh, the fuel of choice. So ethanol is this low cost fuel additive for um, raising octane and gasoline blended with ethanol emits fewer greenhouse gases, uh, but more of other pollutants. So today over 90% of all gasoline sold in the US contains 10% to 15% corn bioethanol and in Brazil it's 25% produced from sugarcane. Um, there are some drawbacks uh, though to using agricultural crops like corn and sugar to make ethanol for fuel. Obviously it's removing agricultural land from food production. Um, it requires all the crops to use things like fertilizer, pesticides and fresh water. Uh, which means that we've come back to investigating seaweed as an alternative source for biofuels. Uh, It's got high carbohydrate content, most of which in theory can be fermented into ethanol um, and other biofuels such as methane. And we already know um, how to farm uh, a bunch of those species at large scale like kombu in Asia, red seaweeds um, in the South Pacific. And unlike corn or sugarcane crops, seaweed mariculture requires no agricultural land. So um, another advantage of seaweed is that it removes carbon from the ocean, potentially making it a carbon neutral fuel. Can't entirely make that claim, but like it's better than a lot of other mm-hmm. things that have been used at the moment. So yeah, it, it can produce ethanol. Of course, that means it can produce any alcohol as well. <laughs> We've gone through a whole bunch of them. I don't think I have many left to add. Um, there is um, <laughs> there is a, there was a, a, a tribe of um, Native Americans that were living in Orcas Island in Puget Sound, you know, which is up kind of near Seattle that used gigantic bladder kelp as a pot still. So mm. the primary purpose appeared to use the kelp bladders with those long hollow stems as a distillation apparatus, but it's also probable that they contributed a certain amount of alcohol through fermentation while they were using it as well. Um, there's a report that there are inhabitants of Kamchatka in Russia brewing an alcoholic beverage described as evil tasting. <laughs> And I feel like we've had names like that from from Russian distilled things before that they all just taste horrible. 
but they made it from dulce dulce which um, as we've discovered is delicious in itself so quite what they did to it i don't really know they usually <laughs> just kind of over distill it i think is uh, is the answer to that and finally i struggled to find any wine but i did eventually uh, and it was from ireland that offers sea fruit wines that have been produced from kelp dulce irish moss wild nori and all the um, and it says the flavour is delicate and it's closer to that of water than wine, which not tempting. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe this is why I struggled to find a wine that uses seaweed because they're all like, oh, yeah, it doesn't really taste of anything. Like, well, why would I want it then? Uh, um, but actually, there, there is another one in Germany where marine biologists have developed a seaweed wine made from sugar kelp which um, is described as an intense terroir wine with a marzipan flavour, much like a fine sherry. Um, Ooh, and nice. it's got lots of health benefits of minerals and iodine, etc. I only found that as an experiment from marine biologists, though I haven't found it as commercially available, so I'm not sure if it mm. really counts. I think the world of seaweed wine is yet to uh, be unmasked, as it were. But there we go. I've... I've gone through i think everything i could find in terms of what we can do and make with seaweeds and algae how about you <laughs> yeah I, i'm ready to go foraging <laughs> i'm absolutely ready to go foraging <laughs> and frolic along the coastline with bits of wet seaweed slapping each other with it that's what i'm envisioning we might be naked as we do this i don't know <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry which means it's time to see who's weed themselves cheers everybody <laughs> Cheers. It's not me. <laughs> it's me. You can always hear me singing this song. Show me the way to go. And now for the very brave, some advice on foraging. We can drink it, and thankfully, because there's so much of the stuff, uh, we can forage it ourselves to drink it as well. Uh, so I delved into that world a little bit, uh, how we can forage our own. Um, fortunately, a lot of the seaweeds, well, like the majority of the seaweeds across the world's oceans are safe to eat. Um, and thankfully, all of the edible species are found here in the UK. There are no poisonous ones in the UK, thankfully. <laughs> uh, no. So we can't get caught up. Like, I'm always too scared to go foraging for like mushrooms by myself because I know I'll probably mess it up and kill myself. Uh, but we don't have this problem with seaweed. Um, so edible species such as dulse, kelp, larva, sea lettuce, they're all quite easy to identify. Um, and as I said, unlike mushrooms or flowering plants and berries, no poisonous ones in the UK. Uh, they're a safe place to begin foraging. Just make sure that you're foraging in an area that is clean away from any land-based polluting sources. I mean, that's been in the news everywhere <laughs> recently. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come to some top tips for staying safe. Um, but I'll quickly chat about some of the ones you could forage here in the UK. So as you mentioned, there's brown, red and green. Uh, so the brown seaweeds, there's over 2,000 marine species of brown seaweed. Uh, the majority are found in cooler waters between high and low tides. Um, the pigment in marine plants gives them their distinctive colour. Um, so it conceals other pigments like the green chlorophyll, which gives seaweed its kind of distinctive yellow, green, brown colours. The iodine level of the brown seaweeds is the highest, which is why they're quite brown. 
Um, some of the ones you can find are, I love these as well, they sound like good like pirate names. Uh, toothed Rack. Um, toothed Rack seaweed is often eaten as a snack in Scotland. Uh, bladder Rack. Um, used sparingly in soups, that's quite nice and tastes like fish. Dabalox. Um, that can be eaten fresh or cooked into soups or it can be fried as a vegetable. Uh, thongweed, also known as <laughs> sea spaghetti. Uh, that's a vegetable with very many uses, a sea vegetable. It can be used as like a pasta alternative, hence the name, sea spaghetti. But it's also used in chutneys and pickles, um, fresh salads. Um, it's also a good candidate for powdering because um, it's got a nice umami flavour, so you can add that into a soup or stew in the powder form. Uh, kelp, sugar kelp. Um, <clears throat> famously used in Japanese uh, cooking again because it's umami taste um, but it has seen a bit of a resurgence recently with chefs and restaurants taking ingredients from those kind of eastern cooking um, they've started using have you heard of dashi stock uh -huh. so dashi stock is really really popular at the moment which is like a stock made with um, seaweed um, <clears throat> It's got a subtle briny taste, which is very rich in umami. I know you're a massive umami fan, so I'm sure uh, you've heard of all of these. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, moving on to red seaweeds. So this one has more than 6,000 species. Um, these can be found in low intertidal and deep water. Um, they're the only sea plants that can grow at great depth. Uh, because of their red colour pigment, they don't need as much sun. So they're the only ones that can really strive at really, really deep uh, seas. Um, they aren't always red. Sometimes they can have a yellowish tint to them, though, or pink and purple as well. Um, popular red seaweeds, dulse. Um, great to eat on its own, but also famously used as a vegan bacon alternative. Yum, yum, yum. Uh, when used in cooking, its properties are like a, a flavour enhancer due to the high levels of umami, so it's used quite sparingly. There's also a pepper dulse, um, which is similar, but with more of a peppery flavour. Irish sea moss, um, largely tasteless, but is also used as a vegan alternative to gelatin. It's used to set desserts and thicken sauces. Uh, nori and larva. So these are two species, but they are almost identical. They're really hard to tell apart. Uh, larva, I know very well, uh, takes its name from the literal Welsh name for red seaweed. Um, larva bread is very, very, very popular where I'm from. Uh, it's got like lettuce type leaves that are almost identical to Japanese nori, the stuff that you see wrapped around sushi. Um, but lots of people like it fried with their breakfast in Wales. And in Cornwall, it's popular, served with cold vinegar. And no thanks. <laughs> um, green seaweeds. Um, 8,000 marine species of green seaweed in this group. They grow in warm, shallow waters in the upper intertidal zone. Um, these guys illustrate the link between land and sea because they've got nice thin leaf-like um, and like a nice darky to light green color. They're more like plants than seaweeds. Um, that's because they get more chlorophyll and they show that off. They grow closest to the beach and therefore are the easiest ones to forage for yourself. Um, the most popular one in the UK that we forage is sea lettuce. 
Uh, it's the most tender of all the UK seaweeds, and when you deep fry that, they make nice translucent uh, chips, crisps. Um, they're good steamed, they're good stuffed. Um, it's often used as a substitute for nori in sushi. It can be added to soups, salads, eaten raw, it can be dried. Um, so yeah, you can wrap fish in it when you cook it on the barbecue. Very, very uh, popular sea lettuce forage. Wakami is another um, green seaweed that's popular. Wakami is also known as sea mustard. So this is a darker green seaweed, but it's the one that they use in miso soup. It's got a nice sweet taste and a silky smooth texture. Um, good news, it's not illegal to forage seaweed in the UK if it's not for commercial use. That is the caveat. So personal use only, so like drugs basically. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there are designated conservation areas in the UK which you will need to check online before you do start going ham on the seaweed. Um, so there are some rules to follow, some guidelines. Make sure the beach or the shore that you are foraging from is clean. Be aware of sewage pipes, farm runoff and water companies. Um, wherever you are in the UK, you can check the quality of the water online. Be aware of the tides. Uh, one for safety, don't want to get caught in the tide. Uh, but also, obviously, it's better to forage when the tide is nice and low and you've got access to the freshest seaweed. Uh, don't pick anything floating in the sea or above the high tide mark. That's likely to be dead, diseased, not very nice. Uh, so try and harvest below the tidal, tidal mark. Um, prime spot would be in a rock pool because that's where the water is going to be the freshest and you're going to get the good stuff. Um, cut the seaweed with scissors or a sharp knife and leave the hold fast or roots as you would call it uh, so it can regrow. Uh, when harvesting, make sure that you move locations regularly so you don't deplete a certain seaweed in one particular area. Although it is vast, you might just find that there's only a little bit of that, that kind of species in that area, so you don't want to take it all. Only take as much as you need and will use. Once you've taken that, you can store it in a cold refrigerator for up to three days. Thankfully, seaweed can also be frozen, dried or dehydrated. Um, if you're going to do that, you should clean it, dry it, store it in a heavy glass jar or an airtight plastic bag in a cool, dark place, and they'll last for years. And the best time to look for your seaweed is in the spring and the summer. That's when the richest bounty is to be had. Uh, some do continue to grow through the winter, but it's not a good time to forage because most are regenerating over those colder months and you don't really want to mess with that. If you can't be bothered to look online for all of the different species so to recognise them and what to use them in, you could go on a foraging course. I think this one might be going on the spreadsheet. Mm, uh, double foraging course. Found one local to me in Pembrokeshire, £40. Uh, you'll spend the day walking the coast and the beaches foraging seaweed and they'll teach you how to use it in food, drinks, as well as wellbeing, cosmetics and craft. And also dogs are allowed to go. So me and the dogs could go foraging if you want. I don't trust your dogs foraging, but um, <laughs> in theory, that's, that's a nice idea. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, that's how we can collect our seaweed to start making food and drinks.